Father, everything that we have is yours. And I'll admit, um, it's, not, it's not much to work with. But God, the, the amazing thing that's true about you and your word is that you take broken things, you take broken people, you take incompleteness and you make it complete. And somehow you take us broken vessels and you, you use us for your glory. And so today we're here in anticipation of the great things you're going to do. Not because we have anything to offer you, but because you're mighty, you're great. And God, we offer ourselves to you again and again, day after day, because you're so worthy of our praise, our worship, our adoration, and our submission, God. So Lord, I pray that this, the speaking of your word today would accomplish its purposes, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Okay. Good morning. Okay, that's better. That's better. All right. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and it is an absolute privilege to be with you and open the Word with you this morning. So, if you have your Bibles or you have a device that you look at them on, why don't you turn them to James chapter four? James chapter four. And today we're going to be continuing our series in the book of James. It starts here. And we've been looking over uh, the, the whole book of James really at this, this idea of how do we live in light of the brokenness we see in, in our world and also the brokenness that we see in ourselves. Because we are broken people, right? But there's good news. God uses broken people. And the book of James has opened our eyes to just the, the way in which he does use us and how we can live our lives in such a way to be used by God. And last week, Phil led us into chapter four, where we see again the brokenness, the disunity, the fighting, the quarreling. And we see that where we see that in this world and in our churches is actually a result of a battle that's going on inside of each one of us. I don't know about you, but... I don't like that. I, I don't like that I'm the problem a lot of times. And I have a hunch that you don't like it either, right? Like it, it, it was a hard message last week for me to come to grips with the reality that when I see quarrels and I see fights and I see disunity in the church, at least I'm part of the problem. Because I would rather just ignore it or blame somebody else for that problem. And if you need proof that we all do this, all you need to do is take a walk down our children's ministry wings or just come to my house because my kids love to blame everything on everybody else. I, I understand, by the way, that I can only use my, my kids as examples as long as they're not in the room. So I, I still have a couple more years of getting to use them, so you can stick with it. I, I'm serious. They blame each other for everything. Last night, uh, we have some family in town, and I walked downstairs, and they had just destroyed our basement, which is kind of the purpose of a playroom. But we, I went down there. I go, whoa, what a mess. And the first thing out of my son Titus's mouth was, that wasn't me. Wasn't me. It was Rory. And he, he loves to blame his sister. My three-year-old even gets this. So the other day we're sitting down at breakfast and I had made him French toast sticks. And if you've seen my son Maddox, you know he's an, he's an eater. Um, and so he's eating and we're kind of chatting and talking. I'm talking with the other kids and all of a sudden he goes, Hey, why you eat my French toast sticks? 
And he go, Titus, or Maddox, you ate your French toast sticks. He, he was blaming me for eating his food off of his plate, and he was mad that they were gone. And that's ridiculous. As a three-year-old, he, I know that he ate them and I didn't, but we do the exact same thing. We like to blame other people for our problems. But James has been clear, and last week Phil made this statement, that the reason we have fights and battles is because our desires are in conflict with the Spirit's desires. And we saw in Galatians chapter 5 that Paul says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So here's the gist of the argument from last week, and we're going to build on it this week. Is that when we want something that's contrary to what the Spirit wants, the result is internal and external conflict or battles and fights and quarrels. And what I want to do with our time today is examine five battlegrounds of desire that James identifies for us in this text. And these are common areas of life where the world or our natural desires tells us one thing, meaning you should do this, but the Spirit tells us a different way, something better. And, and I, I want to dig into these to find out what it really looks like to walk with the Spirit in maturity, okay? So we're going to dig into these five battlegrounds, but I have to give you a warning, okay? Kind of like a label on something hot, right? James doesn't hold back here, okay? Expect him to challenge your deep-rooted practices, okay? If we think of it this way, when, when God molds us and shapes us, um, Sometimes in different places we're like clay and sometimes we're like rocks and we have to use a chisel to get at what Jesus really looks like in us. And so what, what I see in James in chapter four and chapter five is, is God is using a chisel to challenge our deep-rooted practices and sometimes even our deep-rooted beliefs about how our world works, okay? You ready for that? Okay, so strap your helmets on because... James doesn't hold back, and neither am I. But before we get to the battlegrounds, I want to make a very important clarification about what we're talking about when it comes to battlegrounds. Because normally, when we think of a battleground, we think about victory. We think about victory being achieved through fighting and trying harder. Okay? I'd like to remind you that isn't what James describes here. In fact, spiritual battles are not won with clenched fists but on bended knees. Spiritual battles are not won with clenched fists, but on bended knees. Remember, we're talking about a battle between our desire and God's desire. And the antidote that Phil gave us last week for conflict is also our battle plan moving forward. It says in James 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Our path to ultimate victory and peace this morning comes as we submit our will, our desires in these areas to the Lord. In a very real way, 
Spiritual victory comes through self-defeat or fighting against ourselves. This is the heart. It's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus makes this statement. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, <clears throat> excuse me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. To call Christ Lord is to submit to him. Kent Hughes, an author, once said that none of us come to Christ unbowed. None of us come to Christ unbowed. We all come in submission. And here in our passage today, James is, is calling us back to that initial act of submission as a model for the rest of our lives. When you and I, <coughs> excuse me, when you, you and I wake up each and every morning, it should be in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, reminding ourselves that, that who is really on the throne of our own life. I love what Steve Etner said a couple weeks ago. It's not King me, it's King Jesus. And so if we want to have victory in these five battleground areas, we need to remind ourselves it's not by fighting and it's not by just trying harder. It's, it's by submitting and bowing the knee to Christ anew and again. So with that in mind, let's dig into our first battleground. And the first battleground is the desire for prestige. The desire for prestige. He starts in James chapter 4, verse 11. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And when James uses the term speak evil against, what it literally means is don't speak down to or down on other people. It's not just slander. It's not just slandering their name and telling false things about them. It's, it's literally speaking in, to others or about others in such a way to elevate your own status as you put them down. We all know this to be a common practice in our world, that we, we, speak, we speak highly of ourselves and poorly of other people if we want to get somewhere in this world. In fact, entire political campaigns are built on it. And I'm sure you're tired of seeing all the political ads, the attack ads. And that's never been a, a problem in the church, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't tear other people down or, or make fun of other people or speak down to other people in order to build our own status, right? Never? We do. And I'll be honest with you, one of the main places we do this is online, okay? Uh, I don't know what it is about online, but somehow we feel like we're invincible and that our words don't matter when we talk to people online, right? And so we can say whatever we want about others. We can call them idiots. We can call them morons. We can, we can say whatever we want about other people as long as, as they don't say anything about king me. But Jesus and James say there's a better way. In fact, James go far to say is that when we speak down to other people, when we speak poorly 
of other people. We're elevating ourselves above the law and we're elevating ourselves above the lawgiver, God himself. God takes seriously the way his people talk about those created in his image. Keep that in mind this week as you have your conversations, regardless of the person standing in front of you, that person's created in God's image. And God takes his own image and reflection very seriously, and so we should take our words and the way we speak to other people very seriously. And this applies to our our face-to-face conversations. It, It applies to the conversations we have when no one's around and the thoughts we have in our head. It applies to the conversations we have with our best friend about somebody else. It applies to your conversations online. It says, do not speak evil against one another. When we speak down or speak evil of someone, we're determining their value and becoming judges. And James's final statement in verse 12 says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Only God has a right and ability to judge. Are we really so arrogant to believe that we can take his place? Now, hear me out. A lot of times this verse is misused to say, well, you can't judge me so I can do whatever I want because you're not allowed to judge me. Uh, that's, there's partial truth there. I'm not allowed to judge you, but guess what? God's word has already judged many of your actions. And certainly, we can judge external sins to be sins, but only imperfectly. And we, can certainly, we certainly do not know what's at the heart of another person. Only God does. And to submit our desire for prestige, position, and reputation to the Holy Spirit's desire is to look like Jesus, as, he, as Paul describes him in Philippians 2, verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you are a person who highlights underlines in your Bible, that one should have a big mark right under it. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself or humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's our example. That's, that's our example to follow and walk after in our conversations with other people. And true victory in this area takes submission. Looking like Jesus and treating others as Jesus did only happens when we daily lay down our desires and submit to the Spirit's work to mold us into the Son's image through the Word. It's the first battleground, the desire for prestige. The second battleground is the desire for control the desire for control. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such a place and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. If 
I think if a verse ever encapsulated the year 2020, it's the, the beginning of verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Right? It changes all the time. Anybody else getting frustrated with that? And tired of like, I just, I can't even make, we can't make plans because we don't have any idea what's happening tomorrow or the next week or the week after that or, or what the next restriction is going to be. In fact, there's a, there's a running joke in the office that our theme for the year 2020 is wait, hope, and cancel. Because that's what we do, right? There's no question that this year has been a year of unknowns and has shown us over and over and over again that we really don't have control over anything. And just maybe, that's why God has allowed us to walk through this season. Maybe God has allowed a year like 2020. Maybe God has allowed a pandemic, COVID-19, because he wants us to understand and submit to who is actually in control. At least that's part of the reason. As humans, we all have a desire for control, for autonomy. We want self-rule, where we can determine for ourselves what is good going to happen and what is, what's good in this world. And it's been one of humanity's driving desires since the very beginning. Look back with me at Genesis chapter 3. This is at the very beginning of humanity's problems, what we call the fall. And, and right in the, the middle of the story is this desire for control. It says in verse 1 of Genesis 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And what's so ironic and heartbreaking about this story is that Satan offers the ability to be like God. When Adam and Eve are already like God, they were created in his image. But the real temptation here is the desire to choose for themselves what is good and have control over their own destiny. And we have that exact same desire. We're, we're all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, and we have that same desire to determine for ourselves what we're going to do. But what's really actually been a good thing about COVID is it's, it's told me I can't even choose for myself what I'm going to do next weekend. And it focuses it focuses our attention back on the one who really has controls. We frankly can be obsessed with controlling the future. It's why this pandemic has been so difficult. We can't plan. We can't know. We can't see a path forward. We don't, we don't even know what challenges we'll face tomorrow. And this is, again, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual desire. A fight between our desire and the desire of the Spirit. We want control. But the Spirit wants us to recognize the sovereignty of God and to rest in it. Rest in it. We don't have to know the future because we know the one who holds 
the future in his hands. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And Jesus' words here are comforting, but they're extremely hard to live out. Because in order for us to embrace the sovereignty of God, we have to give up our own illusion of control. We have to submit it to the Lord and say, I understand I am not in control of this or any situation. You are. And I bow humbly to your plans for my life. God is sovereign. God is in control. We are not. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We have seen this play out on a grand scale this year, but the battle for control is always raging inside each one of us. Victory comes as we submit our desires to him. This means, though, that the plans you have for your future might not be what the Lord has for you. The plans for a family, your plans for retirement, your plans for a home might not be what God has in store. The question is, will you submit to his plans or continue to pursue your desire for control. The next battleground flows right out of this one because our desire for control often overlaps or includes our desire for money, or as we see it here, our desire for affluence. The desire for affluence, meaning wealth or riches and the power that comes with them. Check out what James writes at the beginning of chapter five. He says, come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have, are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, before you tune me out as I talk about money, let me make one thing really, really clear. God is not and does not call being wealthy a sin, okay? 
He's not condemning wealth in general, but he does call the love of money a sin and certainly challenges our perception of how we're supposed to use that money. Here in James chapter five, this is the most intense passage in the entire book. And so it kind of creates some confusion for us because we don't know if he's writing to believers or if he's writing to unbelievers. Regardless of the case, what's happened is that they're using their great wealth to oppress the poor or they're oppressing the poor in order to gain wealth. And he offers this general warning that judgment awaits those who misuse in one way or another, the gift of wealth. And that warning, it's in scripture, after all, should cause us at least to pause and think, okay? Because some of you are like, well, I'm not, I'm not wealthy, so I get to check that off my list. I don't have to worry about that. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world's history. And even those considered lower class or upper lower class are some of the wealthiest in the world. I found these statistics today, or not today, this week. It said, if your household income is greater than 33,500, you are in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the entire world. That means that 6.2 billion people have less material wealth than you. If you make $5,000 a year, well below poverty level in our country, you are wealthier than 65% of the world's population. $5,000 a week year. And this isn't meant to make anyone feel guilty. Rather, I'd like to suggest that the mere fact that we live in the United States skews our view of wealth and how it's supposed to be used. Doesn't mean you've done anything wrong necessarily to gain wealth. It doesn't mean that you're wrong for having wealth or for being more wealthy than 95% of the world, but it, it, it can at least skew your view of what wealth is and how we should use it. Consider this. Our culture tells us to accumulate more and more and more. It tells us we always need the newest and the best, right? I won't do this, but I could ask you to pull out your cell phones and tell me you know, what version of the cell phone you have. If you're an iPhone user, There's a weird thing that happens with iPhone users. I don't know if this happens with anybody else. You always want the new one, right? We always want the new one. In fact, uh, there's, I think it's the iPhone 12 that's out right now, and they've gone back and designed to this like thin boxy thing. We have sitting on my son's nightstand in our basement, an iPhone 5, still works, still in perfect working condition, and all we use it for is a sound machine so he can sleep at night. Now, why in the world where we have a perfectly good phone sitting in my son's basement and my wife and I have both gotten several upgrades since then. Why? Because we want more. We want better. We We want the next thing. And those things aren't in and of themselves sin, but we can, we can have a desire for more and our thirst for more and can grow and grow and grow until we're just obsessed with wealth and affluence. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you considered how God wants you to spend your money? Pushpay is the company we use for our online giving platform. And in 2019, they did a study of giving habits in churches. In 2019, on average, Christians 
gave only 2.5% of their income to churches. During the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3%. During the Great Depression. And some of you are going to get mad at me right here, even suggesting this, but the Bible communicates that a tithe, meaning 10% of our income, is a starting place for giving. We don't have a wealth problem in America. We have an idolatry problem. We worship money and the stuff that money can buy. And I'm, I'm including myself in there with you. We have an idolatry problem when it comes to wealth and when it comes to stuff. Because we desire riches, we desire wealth. But maybe it's time to consider that the American dream isn't all that biblical. Again, please hear me. God does not condemn wealth. Some of the wealthiest people I know are the most generous. But the call in scripture to submit our desire to God's desires includes our wealth. So here's the question. Does your use of wealth reveal you care more about elevating your own name or God's name? How do you use your wealth? Okay, everyone take a deep breath, okay? You can, you can let go of your wallet. I'm not going to take anything more from you. We'll, we'll move on uh, to our next battleground. It's a little bit easier, okay? The desire for comfort. Okay, I lied. This one isn't any, any easier, but I, I told you, James doesn't hold anything back. He goes right at our, our deep-seated convictions and beliefs and our practices to identify if they really line up with Christ or if they don't. And for many, the desire for comfort far outweighs our desire for money. And in either case, this is true that the word of God calls us to examine most, our, our most entrenched ideals and ask the question, is this really what God wants? And so God asks that here. So the desire for comfort is no different. And let's look at it together, okay? So James chapter five, verse seven. James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And to understand this passage, we have to review the context of, of the whole book. Remember, the very first subject that James addressed in chapter 1 is this idea of suffering, because the audience he's currently writing to are dispersed. They're, they're running for their lives because we have Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who are trying to persecute them. We have Roman emperors who want to kill them for being called Christians. And so they're just scattered all over the place, enduring persecution from the Jews and world governments. And to be fair, their life situation is a lot worse than ours right now. Right now. But the concept is the same. James identifies that when our circumstances don't line up with our desires, we tend to push back. When, when we, we don't like what's happening in our own lives, uh, we get bitter, we get angry, we kind of walk around with 
grumpy faces all the time. We're, we're quick and, and short with people. We don't talk well about others. And James says, be careful, be careful. And in this case, he warns against grumbling against one another because again, we look to blame others for our circumstances or at least make others feel bad with us, right? Misery loves company. And if I can't blame you for my circumstances, then I at least want to make you feel bad enough that you, you can be miserable with me too. But, but James and God says there's a different way. This reaction to any hardship reveals another desire of our heart. It's comfort. We want comfort. It's closely related to the desire for control because uncertainty of all its form creates discomfort. It makes us uneasy. Our desire for comfort, comfortable things, isn't necessarily wrong in and of itself, but when taken to an extreme, it can become an idol. Sometimes our desire for comfort can keep us from obeying very clear commands of Scripture. For example, um, I'm a truther. I don't necessarily have a problem having difficult conversations. But there are some, even for me, that I would rather just ignore a conversation so I can be comfortable. I'd rather not lose this friendship. I'd rather not people get mad at me. Uh, I would rather keep the peace and so I ignore a, a command in scripture that I'm supposed to go to my brother and confront sin in him. Or comfort can cause us to be so consumed by finding comfort and making our lives comfort that we miss out on all the important things in life because we're, we're so consumed with comfort. But the truth is, God allows discomfort. In fact, he leverages it. He allows uncertainty to point us to what really matters. This summer was a, a, a very different summer for me as a youth pastor. Usually I'm, I'm gone most of the summer on youth trips, going to camps, going to wilderness, uh, going on a junior high bike trip and all these different things. And all of that got canned this year. And so I was home more than ever. And you know what? I was a blessing because it pointed me back to what really matters in my life. I got to spend more time with my family. I got to go camping with my kids like 18 times. It was awesome. For the first time in my entire life, I used all my vacation days. So I don't get to celebrate Christmas, but whatever. <laughs> but if I wouldn't have had a weird summer because of COVID, I wouldn't have gotten that blessing with my family. I wouldn't have gotten to spend extra time with them when, when my daughter just turns five, my son turns eight, and I get to explore the woods with them. It, it creates blessings for us, and this discomfort that COVID has caused is really pointing us back to some things that really, really matter in life, like our families, like our church. I, during the shutdown, I missed you guys, right? Isn't it good to be together? And even if you're gathering with us online, this is what God has created us for. He's created us for community. And sometimes we get so blinded by our own comfort that we forget. And so God has to bring some discomfort into our lives to point us to things that really matters. And so God shows us a different way to handle discomfort. He, first he tells us, be patient, 
be patient. In the context of James, the audience is longing for the return of the Lord as they're enduring persecution. They want Jesus to come back. And he says, be patient. Patience is waiting in positive confidence. It's an understanding that even when things don't look good, God is still accomplishing his purposes. Even in your life where, where things don't look great, God is still accomplishing his purposes. There, there's an entire section of history that proves this point. Between your Old Testament and New Testament, there were 400 years of silence meaning that, that, that God's people heard nothing new from God. They didn't hear from any prophets. They didn't have any new writings. They didn't have any new scripture. And so there's 400 years. And for, for God's people who are used to them speak, him speaking through the prophets to them all the time, that's probably a little uneasy, 400 years. But you know what? God was still at work. He was raising up this little, little city called Rome, uh, to take over the known world and to build roads and to establish a language and to prepare the way for his son, Jesus, to be born. So even in the midst of uncertainty and even in the midst uh, of things that didn't seem so great, God was paving the way for his work to be done. And he does the same thing in our own lives. God is still accomplishing his purposes. Second, not only does James tell them to be patient, he tells them to establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. This is an attitude of commitment to stay the course. Stay the course. And there's this weird tension here that I think we often feel of waiting on God to work, waiting, and being active ourselves to establish our hearts. So wait and work. Wait and work. And these two ideas combined form the idea of trust. Mark Vrogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, calls trust active patience. Active patience. In uncertainty, we trust God to take care of our circumstances as he deems fit, and we put in the work of knowing him better and establishing our hearts. So if you find yourself in this uncomfortable situation where you're just kind of waiting for resolution, you're waiting for something to happen, you're waiting for God and you don't know what to do, I have something for you to do. Put your work into knowing God better. Establish your hearts, meaning stay the course. Don't wander, don't move, stay the course. Our desire for comfort often leads to a battle in our soul. Our natural bent pushes us towards anxiety and even bitterness. But when we submit that desire, God leads us to a better path. And that's a path through trust. The fifth and final battleground that James described here is the desire for recognition. The desire for recognition. <clears throat> but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. The statement above all is an indicator that James is actually starting to wrap up his letter. And here he brings up the concept of oath. See, the Jews had this super complicated system of oaths to determine how truthful a person was being 
on any given statement. So they had all these oaths, these things. Uh, I swear by the altar. I swear by the tabernacle. I, I swear by heaven itself. And they would swear by all these things so that, that you could tell if they were being honest. And our, our cultural equivalent would be like after someone tells a story and they go, I swear on my life it's true or something worse, okay? I, I swear on my life it's true. And what he's getting at is we as humans tend to exaggerate in order to gain recognition. We tend to tell tall tales because we want people to like us more. What this is getting at is that the greater stories we can tell, the greater people will think we are. It bolsters our image again. It's tied directly to that first desire for prestige. But this time, instead of tearing people down, we're building ourselves up by exaggerating, okay? Today's November 15, which in my homeland of Michigan is opening day of firearm season for hunting. It's a national holiday, or it should be, okay? Um, and the Orange Army, as we call them, is right now going into their, their blinds. So they're actually probably already there, and it sounds like World War III is going on in Michigan right now. Every year, uh, I watch a movie to commemorate this, and it's called Escanaba in the Moonlight. It's a really bizarre movie. You don't have to worry about it. But they have this family in the movie, it's the Sodi family, who's established this, this deer camp, and they have what's called the Sodi Deer Log. And they have this book that every deer that has ever been harvested in their land has been written down. And the very first entry is this depiction of this just ginormous buck, and I want to read it for you. You have to imagine that person from the UP is saying this, the Upper Peninsula, so they have a thick accent. Uh, he says, 28 points, rack spread of three and three-quarter inches, an estimated weight of 334 pounds. That's like a cow, by the way. And they have all these stories of bucks that they've harvested. And anyone who's ever seen a deer in their entire life knows that's an exaggeration. 28 points, 334 pounds, that's ridiculous. But we, and it's a ridiculous example, but we do the same thing. Our desire for recognition causes us to exaggerate. And if you've shot a 28-point buck that weighs 334 pounds, I would like to see it, please. We want to boost our reputations, and so sometimes we, we bend the truth. And the world says, do what you need to to elevate your status, but God says, and James says here, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Meaning, instead of exaggerating to bolster your reputation, be a person of integrity always. In this way, we reflect our Father who's described in this way in James chapter one. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Be a person of integrity and reflect your Father in heaven. We don't have to exaggerate because our identity isn't in the things we accomplish, it's in Jesus Christ. It's in the person who laid down his life for us. If we take a step back and we look at these five battlegrounds, we see that as humans, we have a tendency to desire our own glory, our own control, and self-sufficiency. 
In reality, our desire is to be our own functional God. We want to be God, just like Eve did, just like Adam did. But when we come to Christ initially, we come bowing to him as Lord and admitting that he and he alone has rule over our life. And what happens over time and what James is describing here is that we begin to listen to the world and instead of listening to the word and our desires become, become misaligned with those of the Holy Spirit. And what James gives us is a reality check. He calls us back to center. Uh, I love to go out into the wilderness and one of our favorite places to go is Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada. And one of the first times I was ever up there, um, I was handed the map and was never told um, how to use a map uh, in the Algonquin. And I was handed a compass and said, okay, you have to get us to this point in the map. And the guy taught me how to use a compass. I was in 10th grade in high school and he said, you always want to make sure that, that you're looking at north. And if you start to drift, make sure that you're adjusting your canoe so you're pointing north again. And every once in a while, it's not like you're looking at it the whole time, but you're paddling, you're paddling, and you start to realize you're, you're kind of drifting off to the right or off to the left, and you have to bring it back to center. So you're pointing the right direction. And what James is asking us to do right here in James, in this book, is to look at our desires and make sure that they're in tune with true north. Are you lined up? Are your practices, are, are your thoughts, are your actions, are your beliefs actually in tune with what God has to say? Or are your desires warring against the desires of the spirit? There's some here today that have realized as we've been talking that their desires have never been in line with the spirit. That every point that we've talked about today has been like, no, I'm kind of over here. I think I can kind of do this on my own. I can do this. And maybe you've never submitted to Jesus as Lord of your life. The Bible says that today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts against him. And if the spirit is calling you to submit today, listen, I would love to help you find a path to ultimate peace and victory found only in Jesus Christ, but you have to take that first step. And if you want to come to the front and grab my hand so that you can know who Jesus is or come talk to one of our prayer team members, we would love to show you how you can have a relationship with him today. So in all of this uncertainty, in all the things going on in our world today, we have a guide, we have a, we have a roadmap to show us that there is a way, even in the brokenness around us, even in a world that, that calls us one way or the other, Christ calls us to submit once again. So I ask you to do that today as you leave. Let me pray with you. Father God, I admit that there are many days that my desires are at war with the desires of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would help me this week renew again my submission to your spirit and to your son and to, to walk in a way that God calls me to do. And help me to understand that though the, the world may look down, that may, the world may hate us, God, that you love us. 
And that ultimately what, what matters most in this world is what you think of us, not what the world thinks of us. And so as my brothers and my sisters and myself try to go this week and, and adjust our compasses, so to speak, to, to be in line with you, would you help us? Would you help us to walk in humility and submit our will to yours on a daily basis? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed. Thank you for joining our worship service today. Our prayer is that God is using the worship and the message to inspire you to love him, love people, and influence the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you made a spiritual decision today or would like somebody to pray with you, you can let us know by clicking the connection card link. If you haven't yet, you can download our church app where we post upcoming events and announcements, and you can share this week's message with a friend. You can also check out our website at fbcelkart.org to stay connected with us. God bless. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Sunday.